we'll go ahead and get started. But but before, well, we'll we'll, we'll get started with prayer. And then I want to read something. I want to take a little bit of class time to read something from the Christian Culture magazine because I think it's worth looking into. But today is the commemoration of the prophet Elijah. Hmm. Uh, prophet Elijah, whose name means my God is Yahweh, prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel, primarily during the reign of Ahab, 874 to 853 BC. Ahab, under the influence of his pagan wife Jezebel, you know that name, right? Hmm had encouraged the worship of Baal throughout his kingdom, even as Jezebel sought to get rid of the worship of Yahweh. Elijah was called by God to denounce this idolatry and to call the people of Israel back to the worship of Yahweh as the only true God, as he did in 1 Kings 18, 20-40. Elijah was a rugged and imposing figure, living in the wilderness and dressing in a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, Many miracles were done through Elijah, including the raising of the dead and the effecting of a long drought in Israel. At the end of his ministry, he was taken up into heaven while Elisha, his successor, looked on. Later, the prophet Malachi proclaimed that Elijah would return before the coming of the Messiah, a prophecy that was fulfilled in the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist. So, let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, throughout through the prophet, through through the prophet Elijah, you continued the prophetic pattern of teaching your people the true faith, and and de de demonstrating through miracles your presence in creation to heal it of its brokenness. Grant that your church may see in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the final end times prophet whose teaching and, and miracles continue in your church through the healing medicine of the gospel and the sacraments. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so uh, in the spirit of Elijah, I, I, I want to read something from, from this magazine. Have, have y'all taken a peek at this yet? I, I meant to grab one on my way out on Sunday, and I got one. Right you got there. one right there. Yes, Good. I do. Uh, like I said, the last, the last edition was uh, the, the first article on that last edition was a little too much, even for me. Uh, kind of went over my head in some ways. But uh, this is full of a lot of good stuff in this one. Um, and one that I wanted to read specifically is found on page 14 from uh, Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Uh, who I've, I've, heard, I've heard him on uh, yeah. KFUO. Yeah, yeah, on uh, which, which one, Concord Matters? or Both. Or, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, he's, he's great. Um, he's like a year older than me. And so he's about your age, Sean. And he's <laughs> yeah. And he's he's married, and he has like seven kids, and he's like he he reads more than I could ever imagine reading any you know amount of stuff. And so this is just a great piece that he wrote here. Uh, it's a plea for America. So he says, blithe acceptance of godlessness once creeping in our land, now sweeping like a flood in our land, has been ours. Ours is the sitting on our hands. Ours the bemoaning, uh, the the bemoaning, 
of other people's heedlessness of the gospel. Ours, the placing of blame on this or that ecclesiastical circumstance. Our acceptance of the growth of ungodliness was perhaps because we didn't want to talk about political things from the pulpit, or perhaps we didn't want to end on the law, or perhaps because of some, some other sh um, sh shibboleth with the, patina, with the patina of orthodoxy slapped on it. The result has been that in the past half century, the number of our churches and the number of our Christians have both decreased, even as the number, even as the number um, of Americans has increased. A headlong rush into every kind of self-destruction, every sort of suicide on a time delay, has been our countrymen's fate. Deaths of, de deaths of despair have risen. The dollar buys less than it has in most of our lifetimes, and a, a cynicism about our government, our schools, our church body, and our own families has become predictable within ourselves and in our, 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 our neighbors. Um, despair and Cynicism can watch from a comfortable distance while people devote themselves to demons and the teachings of demons, to the mutilation of their bodies and the pursuit of their true selves, to the destruction of children either in the womb or in the gender therapy clinic, to the terror of, of, uh, to the terror of um, encountering another human being who may be carrying a disease, to every specter and every demand of 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 Molech, uh, devotion to self-destruction and to the destruction of others in the name of diversity, inclusion, um, equity, in the name of protecting ourselves and protecting others, in the name of my body, my choice. This has been ours and our families, our neighbors, our friends. We have overdosed yet again on what will kill us. The body of America laid out, gasping and unresponsive. And once that body has been narcan one more time, we will still love what will destroy us. Oh, man. Isn't this nice and cheery? Uh, what will become, what, what will be done in the name of Jesus? Is that name mightier than all, the, than all other names? Can that name overcome all these foes and resurrect that self-destructive corpse of a, of a nation? As our, as our nation rages and the princes of media, finance, politics, and every other power group scheme against the Lord and against his Christ, the Lord holds those princes, those powers, those forces of darkness in derision. He is not terrified by their financial holdings, by their campaign donations, or by their capacity to inflict harm on his people. He is not cowed by their mandates, directives, and encouragements to violence. He is not afraid when they hire mobs to burn down cities or allow the price of everything to skyrocket. He reigns over all things. He remains king whoever the president is, 
He is seated high on his eternal throne with the seraphim hovering in wonder and in fear around him. Who will go for him? Who will speak his name? Questions, questions, so, questions so urgent are what is behind Luther Classical College and every new endeavor of hope now beginning in Christ's church. We are not huddling around the ashes left behind from our, our, from our father's fires. We are keepers of holy flame, and now the fire of God's name must spread. It is not enough that some few of us should know Christ's truth, while our own families, um, while our own families, uh, plus our own towns and our own country are overwhelmed by lies and subject to the devil, a liar from the beginning. It is not enough that we should be warmed by the fire of God's word while our children's souls freeze to death for lack of the knowledge of the only true God. It is not enough that we, would, that we should live lives of peace and joy and believing while the people right next to us have no peace, no joy, and no hope because Christ is a stranger to them. He did not have his hands uh, printed with the mark of the nails, nor did he show the scars to his disciples so that he could remain far off. It is not his desire that our children should be fed the scraps of communism's self-hatred and COVID panic in their schools instead of his nourishing word. It is not his will that people should be ignorant of the doctrine that makes us wise for salvation. It is not his intention that any man should die apart from him, but that the sinner, blighted, addicted, depressed, um, de depressed, um, anxious, looking at his phone all the time and never to Jesus, should turn from those ways of death and live. He is nearer to us than our own hearts, and he would have the heart and the mind and the soul and the strength into the bargain. He would have all of us that he may rise up, that he may raise up all of us at the last. We have lived in, in indifference long enough. The time is long past for internecine squabbling, for the frantic quashing of new endeavors, for the criticizing and the harping and the and the the bickering that sufficed for times of prosperity and ease, for the carping tone and the hurried walk past the prone body of the man fallen among thieves bleeding out his life's blood as we walk right past in discomfort and with a twinge of guilt. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, man, that's just fantastic. Uh, I mean, it just hits really hard. Our indifference has taken our children's souls and turned their hearts far from us so that we barely know our own. Our indifference has allowed our, 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 Neighbors to go on with their lives unbothered by us so that they divorce one another and get one another addicted to every kind of evil without our lifting a finger to help where we could have. Our indifference is killing us and we have mistaken this quiet slip into death for peace. Whew. Now is the time for love. What won't you do? What wouldn't you give to see your children in heaven to see your neighbors living life in the way of peace, to see your country turned to the fear of the Lord. The robbers have overtaken us and our children and our country, and we lie unresponsive by the road on the way to Jericho, a city that never should have been built, rebuilt at the cost of a child's life. 
See Joshua 6 and 1 Kings 14. Here comes the priest who passes us by because he has better things to do than that. His vestments remain unsoiled by our filth. Here comes the Levite who is very involved in church life and is too busy to help the helpless. His conscience will find some excuse for his rush. Here comes Christ, the good Samaritan, cast out, despised, not much to look at. He sees us. He sees our children starving for his word. He sees our country distraught, depressed, demon-afflicted, bleeding to death. He knows our need. He hears our cry. And now he reaches down to heal. <sighs> yeah, so that hits hard, right? I mean, that's, that's some pretty profound stuff there. Um, I wanted to share that with you. I, I read it this morning for class, and, and, then, and then we got into the study, and I started asking questions, and everybody was really si silent. They looked really somber, and I was like, did I just kill the mood with that, <laughs> with that piece? I mean, uh, and, and, and I had to tell them, and so I'll tell you all this. The reason why I read that was because um, I think he's right. We are past the point where we have the luxury to bicker about things that don't really matter all that much anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, this, the, the stakes are too high. Too many people don't know the love of Christ. Uh, too many people don't even know what the Bible is, uh, that we can't afford to squabble about stuff anymore. And, and we're not in a time of prosperity anymore. We're not no. in a time, we're not in a time where even Christianity is a tolerated religion and, and, and true Christianity, Right. So it's like I, I told these I told the people this morning, I said, this is not to beat you down, but it is to tell you that we have to have a real assessment of the reality of things, but also to understand that as bad as things are, Christ still reigns on the throne. He is still the King of Kings, um, and he doesn't care one lick about what any ruler of the world has to say. Right. So that it's, it's supposed to be encouragement. Right. And it's supposed and I think it's well within the um, it's well within the spirit of a, uh, it's well within the spirit of the prophet Elijah. Right. Calling to repentance and showing us the way forward, which is Christ himself. So uh, let it be some encouragement to you. Uh, what did you all think about that? Well, you know, you're reading, you walk past the prone body, you fall in among these, bleeding at his life's blood, and we walk right past in discomfort. You know, I did, a, I used to teach Sunday school in, in Pflugerville, I guess it was back in the 90s. Yeah. And uh, I asked him one time, well, if you saw somebody like that, what'd you do? Call 911. Call 911. Call. <laughs> yeah. There's no yeah. help the guy. It's all just, uh, and nowadays... Instead of calling 911, they get out their phone and take a video and see if they can sell it later on. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah, we've, 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 so, we've, we've gotten, we've so dehumanized our fellow man. It doesn't, it's, it's not, it doesn't even register as, as a, a, a person anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I just love what he wrote. I, I think, I think he's a good writer. He's, he's a good speaker. He's very. Yeah, this particular article, I read some stuff in this book. This magazine before that was way over my head. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of them are some of them are a little heady, and I'll admit that myself. Uh, I kind of wonder if it's like uh, it's a little too much, but um, this one was pretty. I like that one. I mean, I I really like Dr. Koontz. Um, he's 
and I, I admire him on a different level too because he was a he was a parish pastor for a couple, for like several years and then he be, he became a professor at the seminary in Fort Wayne but you'll see there that now he's actually accepted a call to a church in Denver Colorado because he wants to uh, establish uh, a church planting network uh, and also to establish uh, like a homeschool co-op network as well. So, and, and I thought I was, I was like, that's actually really neat. He he left a fairly reasonably cushy job at the seminary where he didn't have to do anything except teach students. He didn't have to be amongst the people or the church or whatever. And he's going out there to see about yeah, planting churches now. So I think it's really cool. Always been my impression, you know, uh, Reverend Newman. I, I'm impressed with that guy. He needs to be in a church, not this admin stuff. You know, I mean, this, I, that guy is like amazing. Yeah, I think I think that I think that district presidents, and this is this is personally, I think it's becoming a growing sentiment. District presidents should serve at a church somewhere. You know, they shouldn't just be in the the administrative role. They should be they should be serving at at an altar in a pulpit. Wait, you know, he's got it's, so much. It's a good talent. thing for them to do. He's got so much talent. He's just wasting it. <laughs> well, I'll give him a call. Let you know. You, I'll yeah. let him know you said that, James. Uh, I was like, Who's here's Jeff? Pastor Newman. Okay. Yeah, he's our district president of okay. Texas. Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, um, he's, he's he's sharp. He's like, man, this guy's on tops. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's it's one of those things where we're we're in a position right now where we we really need to reach out. Uh, in some ways, and maybe admit where we failed in the past and what doesn't work in reaching out to people and try something new. And there's always going to be people, and this is what he kind of gets to, there's always going to be people who are going to say, well, I don't like the way you're doing it, or I don't like the, I don't think that this is a good focus, or this, that, and the other. And I, I don't like, uh, was Dwight Moody, you know what I'm talking about? Like, Moody publishers and stuff like that. Um, I don't like him for a lot of the things he said, but I, I've heard a quote from him recently that I think is pretty neat, uh, where when someone was harping on him for what he was doing or how he was doing something, he said, I like the way that I'm doing it a lot better than the way that you're not. So <laughs> I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like we don't have the luxury. And, and I, I say that jokingly, but it's like we don't have the luxury to – to harp on people when they're doing something that is for the gospel and for the expansion of Christ's word and love. You know, I, just, I don't, I don't and, get and it. if you are doing nothing, yeah, then yeah, and you, you really, really yeah. speak up about it. Yeah, and there's certainly stuff out there that we should speak against. There's, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there that is being done in the name of Christ that really shouldn't be. Um, there's things that I disagree with that I'm not going to get into right now, but it's like, it's one thing to criticize that, but if you're not doing anything instead of that or, uh, to kind of correct that or to speak or, or do what, do something. If you're not doing something, all you're doing is complaining. It's not benefiting well, anybody. That's what he's talking about here is just yeah. the indifference and just. Yeah. Just saying, oh, well, that's them. This is us. No big deal. Yeah. No time is done for that. It, we, I'm not sure what it is that we need to do, but I'm up for any ideas that people have. Uh, by yeah, so but we have to be clear on what's worked, what hasn't worked, and what might work in the future. So 
Uh, I bring that up just as food for thought and to promote the uh, Christian culture and the Luther Classical College. I think it's a great endeavor, uh, which is probably, they, they keep saying, hopefully this is the model for future colleges that will be planted elsewhere as well. Because our Concordia system is collapsing around us. I mean, it's, it's, they've closed three, they've closed three Concordia universities in the past three years. And Concordia, Texas has officially ended their affiliation with the Missouri Synod. So that's the university I went to for a year. Oh yeah. Was the one in Austin. Yeah. Now it's out near Round Rock, I think, but yeah, they've, they've severed ties. And that's probably what's going to happen to a lot of them, if not all of them. I don't know. The Lord knows. But um, people are getting on Luther Classical College. It's like, well, why don't we just support our Concordia system? It's like, that's a whole can of worms that you don't necessarily want to get involved in. Or it's it's almost impossible to get involved in because if you're not either on a board of director, if you're not a, on a board of regents or directors, or you're not sending your kids there and giving them tuition, you don't really have, they're not really going to, I mean, you can make a donation, but I, it's not going to really do anything because they're tuition driven, right? And so, and, and they face a dilemma that I don't envy, that they have to either cater to certain things and not some others, but our enrollment of like church workers and pre-SEM students have has like gone down tremendously and so many years and and they're doing it because they have to compete on so it's it's not that they're reducing it but it's like they're going down because these universities have to compete on some level with other universities because they're driven by tuition but luther classical college isn't you know and thankfully it's not so we'll see if it works i wish the best for them right uh and i wish the best to anybody who would faithfully endeavor to spread Christ's kingdom, you know? How yeah. is the, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. How is the church plan in Bastrop doing? Any news? I heard, I, I've, I've heard that they're doing really well. Uh, I think that they're on track, you know, you have, you have these projected tracks of how you want to do well with these things. And they're on track to possibly call a pastor in the next, like, year or two. So hope, hopefully, I mean, Bastrop's a growing area and um, I think it's a great opportunity for uh, the Lutheran Church. So, yeah. Yeah, so. Been coordinators from Bastrop. Yeah. She said her father did something with the, she said the Lutheran Church there. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know Bastrop well enough to know how many Lutheran churches there are, but yeah. yeah. Linda looks on her credit card bill few days ago and there's like I don't know well over a thousand bucks in there a thousand dollars at a gas station in Bass Drunk nah I don't think so <laughs> yeah but that's today's world it's, that's your tie to Bass Drunk it's, it's <laughs> constant nonsense it's, yeah Lord have mercy that's you spend all say. your time just fighting in here I don't know, well let's try and move forward in the in the spirit of unity and the bond of peace um, and do our best not to uh, major in the minors, right? So um, with that, let's actually get to our study. Um, you know, Bible study is a good endeavor, right? We, we, should, we should study the Bible more and encourage people to join us. 
the more we know about the Word of God, the better off we will be, right? So this, so the focus of this session, session seven, uh, righteousness revealed in Christ. God has condemned the entire world in order that He may have, in order, in order that He may have mercy on the entire world through the righteousness revealed in Christ. Right? That's kind of the overall focus of this study. And I will give you a little bit of a heads up. I quibble with certain things that uh, our author has put in here, um, which we'll get to. It's toward the end. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but if we get to... A delightful Ooh, study. Yeah. yeah, so it's going to be fun. And he was one of my professors at the seminary, so... I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be as charitable as I can be, but we'll see. All right, so who wants to read that first little bit there and get us started? I'll start us off. Yeah, go ahead. In recent years, translators have debated whether faith of Christ should be translated as faith, faithful, fullness of Christ. Faithfulness, yeah. Oh, faithfulness. Yeah, of faithfulness of Jesus. Oh, okay, Christ. cool. Suggest, suggestive. Subjective. Genitive. Subjective genitive. Yeah. Or faith in Jesus Christ. Objective genitive. Martin Luther, who tended to emphasize faith early in the Reformation understood it as the latter and influenced interpretation in this direction. Although both translations of the Greek were possible, the context slightly favors the subjective genitive rendering faithfulness of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Briefly reflect on the difference between these two translations. Which does each translation mean? What difference does this make? So yeah, so what what does each translation mean? So let's start with that first one. What is what is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ mean as opposed to faith that is in Jesus Christ? Is it talking about the the faith that Jesus had in his life? Yeah, it's 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 talking about how Jesus was faithful. Yes. In opposition to how we are faithful, right? What difference does that make? I wrote down that faithfulness in Jesus Christ is something Jesus has. Faith in Jesus Christ is something we have. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it, 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 it's talking about, yeah, it's, it's touching on Jesus' faithfulness versus our faithfulness. So what's the big difference, though? I mean, what is what is it? What does it matter, or is there a difference? Depends on who the, your subject is. Who is who is the person? I won't say doing something, but who is the person doing? Something sure. Here? Yeah. Um, yeah. So so um, he gets into it a little bit later about why he thinks that it's more of the subjective genitive. Uh, as opposed to the objective genitive, um, and, I, and I think it's a fair, uh, it's a fair observation. But I guess so. So the faithfulness, uh, yeah. I guess so. When you say the subject, so can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Well, the difference would be what, what is the verse we're talking about? There's righteousness from God comes through. Either the faithfulness of Jesus Christ while we believe, in which case it's based on Christ completely. 
for righteousness comes through our faith in Jesus, which is a lot more um, subjective. Right. It's, so and we're, we're yeah. more of the... It's also redundant, right? It's also redundant. That's kind of what he gets at, right? Yeah. It's, it's it's kind of redundant, and and what's and that's kind of that's the, the debate. Thing. It's yeah. I mean, if it's if it's faith in Jesus Christ, then and he points this out later on, where he's saying, you know, that the righteous the righteousness of God through our faith in Jesus Christ for all the ones who have faith. It's kind of redundant, right? Yeah. Um, his point is to bring out that Jesus is faithful, and then his faithfulness is, is, is granted to us then. Oh, okay. You see what I mean? That's kind of what his point is. I mean, do you disagree with that? And like you said, it depends on the subject. It depends on your emphasis and what you want to see in it. Um, I think, but I mean... I like to be a little weasley and say, why can't it just be both? But it needs to be one or the other, really. Um, and and what what sounds best to y'all with what you know about who Jesus is and what he does and who we are and what we do? Well, I would be fine with it being faith in Jesus Christ because it's not our faith that... I mean, it is our faith that saves us, but it's our faith in Christ that saves yeah. us. So the subject, like the... Most important part is still Christ. Sure. Either way. Sure. Yeah, true. But because it tacks on for all who believe at the end, it sounds like it probably should be faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Right. So it's then it follows with to all who believe. Exactly. Yeah. So the context, context shows kind of. kind of where the thought maybe lying. Could go, right? Yeah. Because it was Jesus's faithfulness to God and mm-hmm. the law and he lived it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the thought, right? Yeah. And 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 that's but that's the tricky thing cuz in the Greek it could go either way. It's not uh, super clear on it, it must be subjective or it must be objective. You know, it's it's not it can be taken either way. Um so that that's that's why he says both translations of the Greek are possible. But like he says, and like he argues, the context slightly favors the subject of genitive rendering faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But like you said, it's still the object of faith is still Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really important. So either way, you can't go wrong. Like in my New King James Version, it says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Right. So that's the direction that the New King James went with that. Um, and that's not wrong. Uh, so because if, if we did start saying it was wrong, then we'd say like, well, that's a whole translation. That, that's, that's wrong right there. Don't pay attention to it. Um, so it's not wrong to say either or. There is a, there is a difference. Uh, and it's one worth noting, right? And that's really all we're trying to do here is note the difference. Okay. Um, any other questions on that? I kind of lean toward the first one after thinking about it a while. So I yeah. disagreed with Martin Luther. Yeah, that's okay. I I, I disagree with, with Luther on some things, except for in the Book of Concord. I agree with him on those things. Um. Anyway, so yeah, I disagree with Luther too. That's okay. We can we can agree to disagree on these things. Uh, it's not going to mean that our faith is null and void, right? Um. So then there's that next part. Uh, Paul is stating that the righteousness of God is manifested in Christ's 
faithful obedience and actions, his incarnation, birth, life, death, and resurrection. This Christ-centered interpretation does not ignore the role of faith in receiving this righteousness. Paul goes on in this same verse to emphasize the role of faith by stating that this righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is for all the ones who have faith. Notice that Paul would be a bit redundant, like we said, right, and more human-centered if he described this righteousness as the righteousness of God through our faith in Jesus Christ for all the ones who have faith. So the faith that Paul refers to in 3.22 is Jesus' faith, his faithfulness to you that makes you righteous. That's, that's the position Dr. Gieshin makes here, okay? Uh, the important role of faith apart from works in receiving this righteousness is introduced in chapter 1, verse 17, and is now developed here and throughout Romans 4 with the discussion of Abraham as the example of righteousness by faith. So in your own words, describe how the translation faithfulness of Jesus Christ provides comfort for you. We jump up for that one. I wrote that only a totally faithful one could be a sacrifice for humans, and it comforts me that it was done the only way it could be. Yeah. Okay. By someone totally faithful. Yeah. Fair. Anybody else have anything? I said that the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is how salvation was won for me. It's not through anything I accomplish. Yeah. Great. Great. Sean, did you have something for that? Yeah. I put it gives me comfort that Jesus laid down his life and did not falter. He was tempted and he, I guess, could have. I mean, he was tempted, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was tempted, uh, and, and that's we can get into that debate later on uh, as to whether or not he could fall into sin um, or whether he could not. I mean, that's that that brings into to the question um, that brings into question or into into discussion on the two natures of Christ, the the human and the divine natures. So it was more like him uh, instead of truly being tested. It was him like. Basically, just putting Satan in his place. It would, so, so the way that it's seen within our Lutheran confessions, and we we agree with certain church, church fathers on this, and really just Scripture in general. It's 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 that he he was tempted, and he really was tempted. I mean, some people would say he wasn't really tempted because he's actually God, uh-huh. you know. And so that's no big deal for him to be tempted. But it was a big deal for him to be tempted because he was flesh and bones, and divine. Well, right? the reason my mind goes there is because when, right before he was about to be delivered over to the, to Pilate, yeah. he said the, the spirit is strong, but the flesh is weak. Yeah, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, yeah. I mean, it was his, it was his battle against the flesh, although his flesh was sinless, right? He did not commit sin. So it gets into this whole thing. Maybe we can do a whole, a, a whole study on the two natures of Christ because it's actually fascinating um, what we say about uh, the two natures in Christ and how they are united in that you can't separate the divinity from the humanity in Christ. When you talk about Jesus, you have to talk about the person of Christ. And within the person, there is the mysterious union of the divine and the flesh. And, and, and what that means exactly like it's basically saying 
um, you can't tell where one begins and the other ends, right? Okay. In Jesus, uh, and and I'm, that's putting it as simply as I can possibly say it, because it gets into a profound mystery of the incarnation that I mean is just uh, you can spend your whole life meditating on that and thinking about it, and, and it's so profound. But yeah, well, so the, at the yeah. end of that, I put a question mark. I was yeah. like, he was tempted and could have question mark. So that was could kind have. of. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't really sure if that was right. Yeah, or not. I, I mean, um, for the sake of argument, there is the possibility that he would have given in on some level, but not really because he is divine. So it's like one of those things of like, even when you open up that door of the, it was possible. It's like, well, no, it really wasn't. It's kind of like saying yeah. it would be possible if you could keep the law yeah. to be <laughs> yeah. saved. Right. It's very, it's, it's theoretical. It's not, yes. it's not something in an actuality. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I fair enough. You. That's a good way to put it. That's um, it. His righteousness is given freely and it's my, and it's my faith is a gift. Yeah. That was the end of my. Yeah. Although I, I, I will say I struggle to even say that it's even a, a theoretical possibility. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, yeah. because, because then, then you get into some dangerous ground of possibly, leading on a trail to deny the divinity of Christ at some level. And we don't want to do that. So I'm not going to go there. Um, I will look more into it because it's always boggled my mind a little bit. Um, it's something about, there's, there's all kinds of theoretical, sorry, the theological terms tied into this. There's like the, the genus myostaticum, the genus idiomaticum and the genus apostolicum. It's, it, and it basically means, um, things about Jesus and how he was sent to do something, uh, how he has certain attributes of the divinity and certain things and how they play out with the, with the, the way that it works with the flesh. And it's, it, it's very heady stuff and I'm not going to get into it right now, but, but it's one of these things of like, you know, um, we, it is important for us to understand the two natures in Christ. That's why we teach about it. Uh, because it's important for us to, to, to understand how God has redeemed our flesh by his own divinity and his own flesh combined in Christ. So that's pretty cool. <sighs> Maybe just get rid of that question and could have. I, 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 would, say probably, I, would, I would say no, he couldn't. Okay. But it's not that he didn't face suffering. Let's just say that. He actually suffered. It's not like it was a light thing for him to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Because he was flesh. And that's what we'll say. I wonder why the devil even tried to tempt him. He knew we were going to get no traction. Because <sighs> the devil is stupid. I don't know. <laughs> he is so stupid. I mean, seriously, I don't care if he hears me say that. He can come after me. He comes after me all the time. What does it matter? Yeah. Um, you know, it's like the devil is dumb. The devil is arrogant. He's prideful. Yeah. yeah he, sure. he thinks he knows everything and he's going to do all that he can. Yeah. So, of, of, of course, he would be so arrogant to think that he could do he's that. He's going down and I'm going to take you down with me, too. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, and you know what's also interesting? Like you can tell Satan doesn't really believe like he knows who Jesus is, but he also doesn't really believe that he is who he says he is. It's like that shows you the limited the limited um power of Satan. He cannot read your mind, he cannot know the mind of God, right? He is not all knowing, he is not all present, he is not all powerful. He is so arrogant. If he was all-knowing and all-powerful and all these things, well, he'd be God, first of all. But second of all, he would have looked at Jesus and known exactly who he was and said, 
all right, I'm not even going to bother with you mm-hmm. because I know who you are and I know exactly who you are and what you will do. But he didn't. Yeah, he was so arrogant to think that he could tempt the Son of God. Yeah, he's acting like God, but he's just another created being, you know, just like a, just like the angels and, and, and like us to some extent, right? We're different in a lot of ways, but yeah. So it's, it's yeah, the devil's dumb. So we'll just leave it at that. He's, he's so arrogant, he's, uh, but, he's, but he's not to be taken lightly. Not to be taken lightly. I'll say that. He's dangerous. Um, so that provides some comfort. The faithfulness of Christ provides comfort because it is not about what we do. It is about what Christ has done, right? Um, so how might you use this passage, right, the faith, uh, the righteousness of God through the, faith, uh, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all the ones who have faith, right? How might you use that to counsel someone Someone who struggles with doubts about the strength of their faith. Well, I was reminded, you know, you get these surveys, Chunky Monkey or something, on a scale of one to ten. Chunky Monkey. Survey Monkey, yeah. Survey Monkey. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's an ice cream, isn't it? Yeah, it's Ben and Jerry's. It's stuff. It's you either have it or you don't. Where, what is this? Scale or strength? Yeah, or strength or weakness. Yeah, I wrote that it's not about how hard you believe. Your faith is based on the strength of that in which you believe. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so if it is about if it is about how strong our faith is, man, we are in big trouble. But if it is about who Jesus is, if our faith holds on to who Jesus is and what he has done, well then that's all good. Uh, did you put something, Sean? I put guarded and don't let go of it. Yeah. Uh, just believe and turn to the word and God will do the rest. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Trust that Christ did what he said he would do and did what he did and will do what he says he will do, right? I, I, I was visiting a member the other day and my I, I, I try to give a little sermon whenever I bring communion to somebody. And one of the things I got into was the resurrection of the dead on the last day. And, you know, it's the final judgment. And um, I got into the whole thing about how, yes, there will, be, there will be a resurrection of the dead for all, but some will be resurrected for eternal life and some to eternal damnation, right? And she was worried. She was like, that's a fine line. Where, uh, how do I know I'm going to be on the right side? And so I said, well, which side do you want to be on? She's, and I was, I was like, do you want to be with Jesus? She goes, yeah. I was like, okay, that's where you'll be. That's really all it is. I mean, it, it's 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 so simple, um, and we get in our own way about the strength of our. Oh, they've got such strong faith. Like I know people who say that are yeah. well-meaning, and and it's and it's meant to be a compliment. But I, I I just think to myself, it's like, yeah, I mean, great if they have a strong faith in Christ. I mean, what better, what what more can you ask for? But. I mean, for someone who is struggling with their faith, who see themselves as weak, weak in their faith, that's that's a big challenge to overcome. And really, all it is is don't focus on yourself. Focus on Christ. It's really all it is. Keep your eyes on Jesus, uh, and that the Holy Spirit will guide you in that way as well. To keep putting Christ before you all the time. Yeah. One of my friends, uh, I had I had that question in my mind. Not too long ago yeah uh, maybe six or seven months ago I was like I'm not even really sure 
that I'm like saved or really, am I really a Christian? Mm. You know? Yeah. And she was just like, do you believe in Jesus Christ and he's the son of God? And I was like, yes. She goes, okay. That's it. That's it. Then I heard somebody else talking about it. If you're dealing with that struggle and you're struggling with that, that probably means that you're on the right path anyway. Yeah. 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 It's, it's the same thing as, you know, when, when um, in Hebrews where it talks about the sin against the Holy Spirit and elsewhere as well, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is the, un, the unforgivable sin, right? Uh, it's one of those things we bicker about. It's like, what does that mean, the unforgivable sin? Jesus forgives all sins, even that one, right? It's like, yeah, well, the point in that, and we went through this in our Hebrews Bible study, was that um, he's talking about apostasy in that people people who follow who once believed and then fell away or fall away because of apostasy whatever um, they're tempted and they just go away um, he's basically saying it's it's unforgivable because it's unforgivable if they remain in that right and when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit I mean you've renounced your faith and you've cut yourself off from life itself. And so, of course, it's unforgivable, right? Because why? God, God will not forgive that except for when the Holy Spirit comes back into you, if he does, right? So it's one of those things, and, and, but we as Christians read that and we say, am I in danger of, uh, like, we'll say, I wonder if I'm in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Have I committed the the unforgivable sin? It's just like if you're worried that you have, then you have not. Okay. Yeah, I probably haven't. No. Yeah, you have not. If you're worried about it, you don't need to worry. You haven't done it. If you aren't worried about it, like if you say like you know, well, I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't care if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's like oh. Yeah, then that's you in that position right there. If you're, but if you are terrified that that's a possibility for you, then yeah, you're not. It's one of those things that actually proves your faith. It, it's kind of a funny thing how that works. Um, so yeah, so you would point out to somebody who is struggling with their faith, saying, point out to them that even though they struggle and stumble, it's not about the strength of your faith, but it is about what Christ has done. Right? Christ is faithful. And he will take care of them, right? And we keep our eyes on Jesus. Uh, we, Luther always used the phrase that we are curved, curved in on ourselves. We're navel gazers. We worship the gods of our belly, and we're always worried about this, that, and the other about ourselves. And have I done enough? Have you know this, that, and the other? It's like stop it. Just look at Jesus. Just keep your eyes on Christ. That's a little. Kurt, but I mean, it's really what it boils down to, right? Just keep your eyes on Jesus. And that's, and you can say that very nicely. <laughs> you can say that very gently. Hey, just keep your eyes on Jesus. It's going to be all right. All right. So, uh, any, any further comments on that before we move on? I feel like we have unfortunately heard, like in prayers of the church, where we're praying for somebody and we say, you know, Lord, strengthen, strengthen them in body and soul. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe contributing to the whole mm. strength can be fa- your faith can be strengthened, oh, okay. or it could be weakened. Yeah, your 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 faith can be strengthened and it can be weakened. It can be shaken. Uh, 
but that shouldn't be the focus. Right. People forget that, though. I mean, we all forget that. Um, I have a question regarding yeah. that. Do we strengthen our faith? No, the Holy well, the Holy Spirit does, and we can say that we kind of we cooperate in that. Okay. Like I can co-op. I am cooperating with the Holy Spirit right now by being your pastor. You see what I'm saying? That through me, the word of God is spoken. And through you to a friend of yours, the Holy, you know, this Holy Spirit can work because the word of God is spoken. And uh, through, a, through a word of encouragement, you know, um, in faith, by the word of God, right? That is a cooperation of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit's the one doing the work. We're just the instruments. See what I'm saying? So, yeah, it's, it's not about... Because that's what I put down here. Oh yeah, that's okay. very good. Before I did that, I wanted to like get it. <laughs> I was like, you you can't do anything to strengthen your faith. The Holy Spirit does that. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he's he's the one that he's the and 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 his his job simply is to keep pointing us to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's it's really really what he does. Um, boils down to it. Um, any other thoughts on that before we keep going? All right, so Romans 3, verse 21 through 31, is without a doubt uh, the heart and center of this epistle. Here Paul brings his argument introduced in chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, to a head as he finally returns to the theme of the righteousness of God. He has shown that no one is righteous, not even those who know the law and are circumcised. God is the only righteous one, and he has revealed his righteousness in the person of Christ. The righteousness that was promised in the Old Testament and that everyone desperately needs. This righteousness is his, is of God, and it is foreign to us. Uh, it is, uh, it is, um, it is um, alien to us. The tense of the verb has been revealed indicates that this revelation has already happened in Christ and has a continuing result as the gospel is preached. Okay. Uh, Paul emphasizes the universal scope of both human sin and the work of Christ in Romans 3, 23 through 24, where he says, for there is no distinction since everyone sinned and lacks the glory of God. Everyone is declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the ransom in Christ Jesus. Glory of God here is a reference to the image or likeness of God that Adam and Eve had at creation and lost in the fall. This text is an important example of universal justification, namely that God has declared righteous all sinners in Jesus Christ. This declaration is accomplished in Christ and completely apart from us. The universal nature of this action by God and apart from us is vital to the proclamation of the gospel. If God has declared the whole world righteous for the sake of Christ, then you can be certain that he has declared you righteous. Um, and we'll get into more about what that means and everything. But first with that first question, why does Paul describe the fall into sin as a loss of the glory of God? What'd y'all put? I see y'all put stuff. <laughs> Good. Well, I put because God's glory cannot be tainted by sin. We were. So we have lost that righteousness of God that we might behold him in his presence. Nice. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else have anything? Yeah, very similar. Glorious God has no sin. With sin, the glory of God is lost. Yeah. 
I said, we are not holy, so we do not look like him. We're only a mirror dimly. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like to see it as a, a, a funhouse mirror. You know, we're distorted. distorted. Uh, yeah, the image of God is distorted in us. Um, so yeah, humans were originally created righteous and innocent. Uh, we did not, uh, yeah, Adam and Eve were without sin. But mankind, uh, mankind had characteristics of goodness in common with God that they reflected his goodness, right? That's, that's being made in the image of God. Um, however, sin destroyed that glory in all mankind. Um, in Adam, all mankind fell into sin, right? Um, any other thoughts on that? No? Y'all have good answers for that. It's all, it's all very, very good. Um, right on. So, Paul... I had, I had, yeah. a, I had a quick... Yeah, sure. Fine. That's good. Okay, so... When Paul talks about, I didn't know what sin was until the law reveals my sin to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in the beginning, in the garden, he gave Adam and Eve that one law... Right. To follow. Right. That allowed sin to come and yeah. and do its thing. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, you, yeah, you see it as yeah that one commandment to not eat of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat. Right. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, so that when that commandment is trespassed, the sin is clear. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a good connection. Um, that um, yeah, it makes it clear what's gone wrong, as opposed to there being some ambiguity, like God was having a bad day and you just kicked him out of the garden or something, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or God, some people say like sin wasn't really there until the Ten Commandments were laid down. No, no, no. no. It's like, well, no. Yeah, no. no. I mean, this is this is how you answer that question. Uh, Okay, so if sin wasn't there until the Ten Commandments, then why did everybody die before the Ten Commandments were given? I mean, the wages of sin is what? Death. Death, yeah. So of course there's sin because people die. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the same thing with babies. Why you got to baptize them? Because it's just like, well, they don't have any sin. Can your baby die? Well, yeah. There's sin there. Yeah, they're, they're sinful. I mean, that's just, that's why. Oh, anyways, um, yeah, so that's, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. The commandment was given so that, so that the trespass would be made clear. Um, yeah, good stuff. All right, Paul bases his declaration on God's grace, undeserved love given to the world through the ransom, the payment for sin in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Here the gospel, the good news, radiates forth. The righteousness of God is not merely an attribute of God. It is the reality of God in Christ who has graciously acted to save the whole world. The focus on God, the Father's role, is emphasized in Romans 3.25, whom God put forth over as a mercy seat sacrifice, a gift appropriated through faith in his blood in order to show his righteousness. Although you will see the Greek word hilasterion um, 
Translated in a variety of ways, mercy seat sacrifice captures the technical meaning of this term as a rendering of the Hebrew kaporet. The, uh, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant where blood was poured on the Day of Atonement, as you see in Hebrews 9, 5 and Leviticus 16. Uh, so some Christians today are uncomfortable talking about the blood of Christ. Why does Paul emphasize Christ's blood? That's how you pay for sin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's at the very beginning of the uh, Bible, too. Uh, it's... I don't, Luther doesn't even talk about this, but I think it's kind of fascinating, but I've, I've heard this interpretation that even in the very beginning, Adam and Eve fell into sin, and what did they do? They tried to cover themselves with what? Fig leaves. Fig leaves, fig leaves. yeah. Um, uh, which is kind of funny if you know what a fig leaf looks like. Um, but it, that's neither here nor there. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny because, um, and, and Luther posited that that the tree that the tree of life was a fig tree. So what they were trying to do was take the leaves from that tree and cover themselves up and saying like, oh, it's okay, everything's okay, we're covering ourselves with a good tree, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, and that was that was his, his thought. I think that's kind of a neat thought. But I've heard the the interpretation that what so what happens after God removes them from the garden? He gives them clothes of skin. Of animal skin. Animal skin. How do you think that happened? Yeah, kill it. Yeah, kill the animal. <laughs> the animal had to die. The animal's not just walking around without skin, right? Yeah. So God had to shed blood in order to cover them in a, in in the right way. Yeah. So it's, it was it was it was a covering of sin by by the shedding of blood. Um. So why? What do y'all? What do y'all think makes people uncomfortable with talking about blood and the blood of Christ and stuff like that? Yeah, that's 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 not uh, the question. People think blood of they were, but oh yeah. Um, I'll I'll use my uh, my chef as an example. Um, we won't tell. He, yeah, <laughs> he's not. It's, it's, a, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We don't really get into too many discussions, but I've been wanting to discuss more with him. But he's yeah. really he's a typical chef. He's really dark. Yeah, that means anything. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Pretty vulgar guy. Mm. likes his dark humor but uh, when he hears blood of Christ he automatically thinks communion but it's wine it's not Mm. not actually the blood was Jesus a liar? (laughs) and and that's what I told him I was like well it's 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 both they're both present there Yeah. yeah you know yeah. And he's just like, and then he makes some wise crack joke or something to yeah. dissolve the conversation. Yeah, it's a defense. Yeah. Mechanism, probably. I don't I don't I don't know the guy, I don't want to read too far into it, but that's typically what happens when someone makes a joke about this. And he's a really good guy. Sure. You know, he has my back at work and sure. we have a really good relationship. Yeah. That's good. That's good. And hopefully hopefully and he went through the twelve step program because okay. he's uh, seven years uh, recovered now. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, and I heard a lot. Heard a lot of Christians have a problem with the twelve-step program. I don't really know how I feel about it. Uh, I'm not a big fan. Um, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a big fan but because I'm because off, off yeah, topic. it's deistic. 
They say as long as you yeah. believe in a higher power, it doesn't matter if it's the Christian God or whatever, as long as you have a higher power. I'm just like, and that's hey. what he succumbed to in yeah. the 12-step program. Yeah, it's deism. It's a shame. It's, it's also a shame because then it brings into question whether or not you should be able to receive Holy Communion because some people believe that alcoholics will immediately fall off the bandwagon, fall off the wagon when they have just one tiny sip of wine or alcohol. It's just like... There's not even enough there for you to metabolize for the rest of the day. Oh, he, he would he would say, I can't I can't do that. That would awaken the monster yeah. in me uh, and I would well, go back to drinking. And Lingus got something to say, of course. And then I would tell him, I would say, Well well then you clearly don't believe that it is the blood of Christ. Because this is not something to be avoided or to be or to run away from as something dangerous. But if you think that it is going to cause that, then yeah, you probably shouldn't take it. Uh, but I would still encourage. I would try to find a way to encourage him all the more to say, look, it's. I I mean, you have to trust God's word. Either you trust God's word or you trust AA or your own inclinations about what your alcoholism is. Um, but the Lord, this the fruits of the Spirit would say you know, would would say that there is a possibility of you overcoming that to where if that's the only alcohol you ever have, you're not going to fall off the wagon. You're not going to have the beast awaken inside of you. Um, in fact, that's one of the things, if not the thing, that will keep that from happening. Because it is for the strengthening of your body and your soul unto life everlasting. But again, if somebody doesn't believe that, then they really shouldn't partake. Which is really sad. Um... You know, keep them in my prayers. Uh, and hopefully your conversations with them will, will maybe lead somewhere. And you I'm never know. They do. I'm not going to give up on them yet. You never know. Yeah, you never should. I mean, yeah, as long as there's life, there's hope. Right? So, yeah. Um, all right. So, I, I think that people are squeamish or uncomfortable about talking about the blood of Christ because, well, first of all, nobody really... I said it. I said it this morning. We're all so far removed from blood and death yeah. that we don't even know what to do with it anymore. I mean, I said that it's it. That was my take on it. People yeah. Nowadays, you know, I shed blood probably every week with a coon or something, and it's no big deal to me. Yeah. But some people, oh, yeah. Well, no one knows where their hamburgers come from. <laughs> when they pick up their chicken at the grocery store, yeah. they do not even realize that that thing had feet, a head, and feathers, and internal organs. You know? Um, by the way, chicken hearts are delicious. That's another story. Um, uh, I yeah. love them. They're great. Uh, but the thing is, is and they're full of... It's not even one bite. Huh? It's not even one bite. That's why I buy a whole package of them. <laughs> you get a bunch of them in a bag, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a lot of chickens. But hey, you know, I mean, it's cheap. So that's a good thing too. Lots of vitamins and nutrients. Um, but you you see people, they, they have no idea where their food comes from. They have no idea what it, like Bessie out there in the field, it's a beautiful cow, but tomorrow she could be hamburger meat and you don't even know and you won't even, and, and you won't even think about what it takes to process a cow. You know, because we're so far removed, everything is, is, is clean and neat and packaged up away from us. We have no idea about this stuff. We don't even have an idea we don't even have an idea about death that our ancestors did not even a hundred years ago because in homes, like the reason why we have funeral parlors is because they replaced people actually having a loved one who died in their own parlor of their home, that it was the family's responsibility. Like you would, you would have 
the Undertaker, make a coffin and dig your plot and make the tombstone and stuff like that. But you, as the family, would take care of the corpse and dress them and put them in the the coffin or the casket and then have them in your home for a day or two so people could come by and see it and then you would go bury the body and and it was one of those th- and, but like we are so far removed from that we we have it's all sanitized it's all separate it's all out of sight out of mind and I'm not necessarily saying we should go back to that but I am saying that we've lost something in regards to understanding what death is yeah. And when you too decadent. yeah, when you forget about death, you do everything that you can to postpone it or to eliminate it. I mean, why do you think transhumanism is such a big deal right now? Uh, people wanting to like merge their bodies with machines robots. so that they're what's that? Yeah, robots yeah, and AI. Your consciousness like into a computer brain. Yeah, because and you, live forever. Yeah, right. You would just need to make another robot yeah. body and just keep it going. Yeah. Yeah, because because you like as a person, Galactica. yeah, because you as a person can be boiled down to your consciousness. It's it's, it's ridiculous. Your God created. I mean, I love this question. What's more important, your body or your soul? Which one did God create? Oh, He created both of them. Yeah, and then that's that's you as a person. It's your body and your soul combined. You can't just separate the soul from body and say, well, my soul's now in a computer. Is it really? Is that really you? I don't think so. I think it's it's way too complicated. We're so arrogant to And they might be able to that. download bits and have something that resembles you, oh, but it no, won't dude. be you in there. No, dude, I think I I It'll think it'll just be a computer program. No, I think I, <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I think it is? I I think I think if anybody would have said and I know I'm going on a tangent, but I, I really do think this and I think we should think more like this about this stuff. That AI and if you think that you can download your consciousness into a computer and you can talk, like, let's say, it's like, oh, Sean, the last thing he wanted to do was to download his consciousness into an iMac, you know, or something like that, or like a supercomputer or something like that. It's just like, oh, okay, so you mean I can go talk to Sean? Yeah, go talk to him. And I'll go talk to Sean, quote unquote. You know what it's really going to be? A demon. That's yeah. what it's going to be. And so is AI. I mean, it's uh, potential for demonic, uh, demonic intercession, the likes of which you will, you've never seen. I mean, if you don't want to mess with a Ouija board, why would you want to mess with AI? <laughs> you know? And some of the stuff that Sorry. AI repeats back to people when they start talking to it. It's creepy, man. It's super creepy. Yeah, it's really bad. Don't mess around with that stuff. It's like a Ouija board, no doubt. <clears throat> Anyways... But people are so far removed from death. People are so far removed from what it is to, you know, know about death. But Paul emphasizes it in the blood of Christ, right? Because Jesus shed his blood for our salvation. I mean, there's no escaping death unless Christ returns, right? So we're all going to die someday. And it's one of those things that I remember asking uh, Pastor Murray at a memorial in Houston when I was talking to him about confirmation one time. I was like, what's your main focus in confirmation? And without a, didn't skip a beat, he just said, oh, uh, the main goal for confirmation is to prepare these kids to die. I was like, wow, that's, can you elaborate on that? And he, he elaborated, but basically it was just that everybody's going to die, uh, again, unless Christ comes back. But, uh, and, and so to do that, we as Christians need to understand that death is not the end and death is not the final victory. The final victory is not in the death of Christ, but in the resurrection of Christ. Right, so we have to understand that; otherwise, we miss 
we miss a lot. And the consolation of God's grace through Christ is so that we would not fear death or the power of sin or the devil, right? Um, so yeah, it's very much emphasized and it should be. So how do the worship services of your congregation also emphasize the blood of Christ? I put through the sacraments of Holy Communion and absolution and baptism. Yeah, okay. Nice. So yeah, of course. If you, if you want me to elaborate, I mean, the sacraments of Holy Communion, I would think it would be obvious. Yeah, the blood of Christ is what, yeah. The blood of Christ in the body, yeah, that's right. You receive absolution through that. Yeah, that, because. That sacrifice of, of Yeah, Christ because of the, the atonement made by the blood of Christ. And yeah. resurrection mm -hmm. and baptism. I mean, you're baptized into Christ's death. That's right. And resurrection. And made a new, and resurrection and made a right. new. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And, and also in, in Revelation where it talks about these, these are the ones who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and they are clean, right? They are white as snow. Uh, yeah. So anybody else have anything on that one? Yeah, so our worship through one thing I thought of is your altar has a bare cross emphasizing resurrection. It doesn't have one of the crosses with Jesus hanging on it, emphasizing the blood. Yeah. I, mean, I either one's okay. I honestly were I wish I wish we had uh I wish we had a corpus on the crucifix, because then it would be a crucifix, it wouldn't just be a cross, but I wish we did have one. Um because yeah, because I think I think it's important for us to see the price for our sins play, play, placed on Jesus. Um, honestly, from what I know, an empty cross doesn't never historically, at least people people say it does now, but it never historically meant the resurrection. Uh, it was it was either because people couldn't afford to do the artwork to make a. To make the body of Christ and place it on there, yeah. or it, or if it's if it's after the Reformation, it's because literally people said that's too Catholic. Uh, that we want to that 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 um, that they, want to get they think it's too mystic with it. Yes, and it, and that it's too grotesque. Idols. Right, and to remove idols because in the Calvinistic understanding, the second commandment is that you shall not make any graven images. As opposed to tying that to the first, as as opposed to incorporating that in in the first commandment that you shall have no other gods, right? We're not iconoclastic as Lutherans. Um, uh, if we if we really wanted to emphasize the resurrection, we would have an empty tomb on the altar, but we don't. So is that a big difference between Orthodox Christianity and Lutherans? What's what? Because so, I was looking into Orthodox Christianity just mm -hmm. you know to see what it was about because I didn't really know anything about it. Yeah, um, and they have what they call icons. Yeah, all over their yeah their uh, and they're pretty sanctuary. neat too. Yeah, but they don't pray to them as the Roman Catholics would pray to them to carry prayers to. to oh, God. I didn't know the Roman Catholics. Because we that. just venerate them. We just honor them. We don't really like worship them or yeah. pray to them that they would take their prayers to. You know the tricky thing about Christ. the. The, the tricky thing about Eastern Orthodoxy is that it's so decentralized that it depends on which church you're with. They'll emphasize more some things more than others. Um, and they're also very slippery with their theology. It's like trying to nail jello to a wall. 
they're very they're very poetic in how they talk about things. It's beautiful how they talk about some things. But when you actually try to hammer down specifics and systematic understanding of faith and elements of theology, they'll get very wishy-washy, or not wishy-washy, they'll they'll get very evasive and just say, well, it's, it's a matter of conscience. Or, yeah, or it's a matter of this or that or the other. And, and um, they'll say things like, if you want to know more about it, uh, there's there's a great issues etc. Um, interview with Pastor Will Whedon. He toyed with the idea of going into Eastern Orthodoxy when he was already a Lutheran pastor, and uh, he was thankfully, rightfully persuaded out of it, and, and he looked more into it and realized that was not a good thing to do. Um, but he says they they'll say, well, we don't really pray to Mary. But when you look at their prayer about Mary, I mean, of, of course we should pray to God, giving thanks to him for the blessings bestowed upon Mary that, are, that, that we can see as a benefit and this, that, and the other. She is the God-bearer. She is the mother of God, right? And we give thanks to God for her. But they, on some level, depending on, again, which tradition you're in, They'll pray to her as a co-redemptrix on some level, you know, that, that she is a co-redeemer with Christ or something like that. And I think they don't acknowledge one of the creeds. They do not acknowledge the Nicene, the, uh, the Nicene Creed in our rendering of it. They don't believe that Jesus descended into hell. No, it's not that. They don't, they don't, they don't agree on a certain principle that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Yeah, so that's the filioque clause that was ratified at the Synod, at the Council of Toledo, I don't know, some time ago. <laughs> I forget the date. But yeah, they were upset because they were not, they said it wasn't a truly ecumenical council. And so they, on principle, of, on that principle, they say we don't want to accept that clause that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They make theological reasoning for that but i think if you were to press them and you were to show them where jesus says that the whole that I, I i will send the holy spirit you know and the father will send him and and that sort of thing they would i think if you were to call a council and invite them and have them involved they'd be like yeah okay we'll we'll agree to that but they're a little sore they weren't involved they were left out so that was that was a big east west thing too so any more questions on orthodoxy? <laughs> yeah. I, like, I totally o. got a sidetrack. Uh, capital sorry, O, guys. capital O, not lowercase O, orthodoxy. <laughs> Amy, you want to say something? Well, if we're on sidetrack. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we say the Nicene Creed for communion and not the Apostles' Creed? Uh, because the Apostles' Creed is a baptismal creed. Uh, it is a general creed that we should be saying really every day. And the Nicene Creed is more fully fleshed out in exactly what it was for Christ to be made flesh. Uh, And so it's not bad that you have the Apostles' Creed. Some churches do that. But it's always, it's actually been a a tradition in the greater small c Catholic universal church that you you would recite the Nicene Creed when you received Holy Communion. It's a tradition uh, that has good reasoning to it, and so I just I try to stick with the good a good tradition there. 
Um, That's what we did at cross services where we weren't receiving communion. We would recite the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's how it was here too. Um, but but when when you have communion, the the tradition is to talk is to go into the Nicene Creed because it talks about how Jesus came down from heaven and was made man. And whereas uh, the Apostles' Creed references it, but not as distinctly. So it's some reasoning. You don't have to agree with it, but that's <laughs> that's the reasoning. Uh, and, and that's the thing. If you want to say, well, I miss saying the Apostles' Creed, I'll, I'll just say, well, you can say it every day. Yeah. <laughs> you can say it every day. No one's going to stop you, you know? Um, and, and we have it in our congregation at prayer, too. I mean, every, every major prayer service we have in, in, the, uh, in the service book, is, it, it includes the Apostles' Creed. Oh, except for Matins. That's another story. I don't, I don't really know why, but I think the Te Deum takes care of it. But anyways... Let me take a breath. <laughs> Let me take a breath real quick. Uh, <laughs> all right, so I I love I love these tangents, but let's let's get back to it. So the worship services of our congregation emphasize the blood of Christ not only in um, the Lord's Supper, baptism, absolution. You know they are tied to the to that reality of the the shed blood of Christ. There's also hymns. You know, uh, water, blood, and spirit, crying. Y'all y'all know that hymn. Like water, blood, and spirit crying. It's really neat. It's a nice, broody, dark hymn. I like those. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, not all the blood of beasts. That's what came to my mind. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, thy, uh, thy body given for, for me, O Savior. Mm-hmm. Thy body given for me, O Savior. You know, and then it's like, and may thy body and thy blood be for my good, the high, before my soul, the highest good, right? And then my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood blood and righteousness. Yeah, so we have a lot of hymns that reference the blood of Christ. Um, The other thing that I said beside hymns, mm -hmm. and this kind of goes back to what Daddy mentioned. Back when uh, Gisi was here, the thing in the middle of the altar was the cross. Yeah. And I don't remember if it was you or if it was McCall or who changed this, but somebody put the cross over to the side. Uh-huh. And so now the first foremost thing on the altar is the chalice, mm-hmm. which blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. The, and uh, well, and, and is, is it, I mean, maybe because I said it. For altar, I don't know, but mm-hmm. like that's in front. Yeah, yeah, and and we'll and I, I have some ideas about setting up the altar too, to where we'll just to where it'll, you know, right right now it's the big mound of of, of, of everything under the uh, the veil. Um, I I really like the practice, and and you know it's different everywhere, but there are there's there's becoming more of the practice where. Um, you only have the chalice and the paten on the altar, and it's veiled. So it's very simple. It's just direct. It's only the chalice and the paten. There's nothing in them except for maybe the celebrant host, the, the big wafer in the paten, which is the middle dish. And that just makes a singular focus and, and preparation for Holy Communion. And then all that other stuff is brought on when the table is being prepared. The elements are brought in um, and prepared, but and you have like really really nice uh, um, uh, 
what's it called? You have you have really nice chalice veils that match the pyramids and things like that. There's a lot of nice possibilities for those things. But yeah, it's in a traditional church also with the fixed altar against the wall. You would have the cross still in the middle, but in front of the cross would still be the chalice. Uh, the reason why it got moved off to the side is because then we did a freestanding altar and you get behind it and the, the pastor faces the You people. know, I really never even thought about that. I must not pay attention. <laughs> well, now you know. So, yeah, now, now you know. Um, although I got a, I, I talked to a guy. We were down in Braunfels and we met this guy at a men's warehouse who was uh, Romanian Orthodox. I don't know how I got there, but he's a nice guy. Um, he said his name was... Uh, Dylan, but he introduced himself as Cyril because that's his baptized name in the Roman in the Romanian Orthodox Church, or whatever. So like, that's pretty cool, I guess. Uh, but you weren't baptized in the Roman Church. We're not going to get into it right now. Um, but he said he said there used to be a joke about the freestanding altar, about how it used to be that everybody that everybody faced east, including the priest. But he's but he said there's kind of a little joke. It's like everybody faces east except for the priests now in. Vatican II stuff, which is what we do with the freestanding altar. So, a little liturgical humor there. I know it doesn't go over well with everybody. So, uh, it's just one well, of those I remember things. when Pastor McCall turned everything around, and he explained it was, you know, for the words of institution, it was so the congregation could see what was happening. Right. Yeah, that's the justification for it, and yeah. and I, I I agree with it. Um, there are some who are diehards. Who want to go back to a fixed altar because everybody should face east. Um, but it's kind of funny because uh, my supervisor on Vicarage, when I was at on Vicarage in Ohio, they have they have a very traditional church and it's a fixed altar. And when he would talk to the kids in confirmation about what do I do at the altar, they go, oh, because they can't see because he's just standing. He's up there doing this and he's saying like. Take, eat, this is my body, take, you know, and stuff like that, and, and doing all this stuff. And he's and he's like, so what do I do with the altar? Like, I don't know. I never see what you do. That's how Cross was, the old, the old building before they built the new one. Yeah, with a fixed altar. There's a fixed altar in the back. Yeah, and that's fine. Uh, but there is a there is a nice thing of, of being able, of, of, the, of the people seeing what's going on and the people being proclaimed to about what is happening. So. Yeah, I didn't really get to see what was happening until I was an acolyte and went through confirmation. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. yeah you would see all that stuff. Um, yeah, so anyways, let's keep rolling on. <sighs> Good tangents. Individual justification, personally receiving the benefits of God's universal declaration, is emphasized again in 326. Uh, in order to be righteous himself and to declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So the righteousness that we need, which is present in Jesus Christ, is received through faith in Christ apart from anything that we do. This means we have nothing to boast about. God accomplished our salvation through his past action in Christ and then through his present action in the gospel as he brings us to faith in Christ. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read all the different uh, passages that it tells us to uh, trust that y'all have already done the work and we'll just talk about it, okay? So chapter 3, verse 27, he, he summarizes there, where is boasting in personal righteousness? What's the answer? Nowhere. Huh? What? 
said nowhere. Nowhere. Okay. Yeah, because he he references chapter two, verse twenty three and twenty four, and then chapter eleven, verses seventeen through twenty one. So where is where is boasting in personal righteousness according to those passages? Nowhere. Um, you could say the yeah. Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, in personal righteousness, okay. So then I guess that goes against the conventional understanding of personal righteousness then, right? Um, maybe? I don't know. It's a nice little workaround you're trying to get there uh, to make personal righteousness work out. <laughs> what is your definition of personal righteousness? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. What, is, what does it mean for personal righteousness? But yeah, the boasting, what it... Do we boast in our own righteousness? No, we 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 can't. Why? Why can't? Because we? you fall short. Yeah, you're not perfect. Yeah, what do you have to boast about, really? Yeah, you can't. It's it's yeah. You we cannot boast in personal righteousness because our righteousness, apart from God, can you know is nothing. But our righteousness, the only reason why we are righteous is because of Christ's righteousness, right? So it's not our boasting, it's boasting in Christ. So yeah. Anybody else have anything for that? Nope? All right. Let's keep moving on. On what principle is it boast is boasting excluded? On that of observing the law? You see that in chapter 3, verse 27. I mean, he goes on to answer the question. What's What's the answer? In Jesus Christ. Yeah. What, yeah. Does faith... The law can't save you. Yeah, yeah, so no man can boast. Right. Yeah. The law cannot save you. No man save Jesus Christ can boast. Right? Faith excludes personal righteousness because it doesn't trust in personal righteousness. It trusts in the righteousness of Christ. Right? Uh, the law can only show us our unrighteousness, and it has no power to save. Okay? Um, any thoughts on that? Questions? I'm starting to always put faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, good. <laughs> it's a good practice, you know. I, it, we we, sh we should be very precise in uh, how we use language. Uh, I, was, I, I heard one time that, and I, I tried to say this to somebody, and they kind of scoffed at me, but I was like, I, thought, I think it's kind of nice. Theology is the art of making distinctions. I mean... How you talk about God, you, you, you need to be precise and distinct in what you say. And we're going to get to that with my little squabble here, with uh, my little quibble here with Dr. Gishan here in a minute. Um, yeah, you've been waiting for a while now. Uh, all right, Romans 3.28 makes monergism rather than synergism. Uh, did y'all look that up, what synergism was? All right, so synergism... Uh, yeah, it's the false teaching that human that mankind cooperates with God in salvation by offering good works of, or faith to God, right? So you would even like, say, like, God kind of like kickstarts you, and then you <laughs> kind of do the rest. Um, you kickstart yourself, and God does the rest. Yeah, oh, it's okay. one of those things. It's of, the other way. It's okay. something like that. It's one of those. Well, but either way, you're thinking that right. you can cooperate. Yeah, the Roman Catholics think that. They think that God just kind of... In baptism, they believe that your original sin is washed away, but not your actual sin that you've committed. For that, you need to have penance, and you need to um, 
do, do, do works of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's a synergistic mindset. So is uh, make a decision for Jesus Christ. That's synergistic uh, because it's not about our free will of choice for Jesus. The only thing we have free will in is to reject. When it comes to our acceptance of Christ, that is the work of the Holy Spirit only. Because dead men can't make choices, right? Uh, And so then you see there, monergism, God by his grace alone saves sinners. Mankind does not contribute to its salvation by offering faith or good works to complete the work of God. It's, It's done for you. So Romans 3.28 makes monergism rather than synergism very clear. For we reckon that a man is declared righteous by faith without the works of the law. Notice the form of the verb is declared righteous. Uh, You can see the righteousness of God in the glossary there. Righteousness is not something we declare about ourselves or achieve for ourselves. God declares us righteous. Whether Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, we become righteous and live in this righteousness that comes through spirit-worked faith. So that next question from chapter 3, verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? So what's your answer? God is Lord of all. Yeah, God of everybody. God of everybody. Everybody. Um, He's the God of everybody, whether or not you believe. But, well, I mean, he is God. Whether or not he's your God is a matter of faith, right? Uh, so he is the God of everyone who has faith and salvation through Christ. Because the God is something that you put your full fear, love, and trust in. Right? That's, that's what we believe from the catechism. Um, well, not we don't believe it from the catechism. We believe it from the Ten Commandments. And then we understand it in the way we do from Luther's small and large catechism. Um, so do we Christians nullify the law by this faith? In verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 31. Do we nullify this law by, the law by this faith? Nope. No. We uphold it. We uphold the law, right? We delight in the law. It is holy, righteous, and good, and we can only see it by that in that way by faith because it has been fulfilled in Christ, right? God's people delight in the law. Um, all right. Any questions on that? Thoughts? No? Okay. Here comes the good stuff. Okay, so this, so universal and individual justification. Uh, This study earlier described the tendency of some interpreters to focus exclusively on justification by faith or individual justification, right? Romans certainly teaches this individual side of the doctrine with its repeated emphasis on faith, but Romans also teaches universal justification. Now, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to quibble with it, okay? So this is just this is Dr. Gieschen getting, getting out what he's getting to. For example, uh, chapter 3, verse 24 states that everyone is being declared righteous by his grace, okay? Romans 4, verse 5 states that God declares righteous the ungodly, and in parentheses there, oh, not only those who come to faith. So, uh, and you see that in chapter 5, verse 7 through 8, which states that according to our powerless time, while we were still sinners, Christ died on behalf of the ungodly. Now, you may be asking, what's my problem with this? 
My problem is your understanding of declaration. Okay? Uh, um, yeah, it depends on what you mean by declaration. So if you think this is, this is where you really need to be careful which, with, with how you explain these things, because if you tell somebody what he just said, which is that God declares righteous the ungodly, not only those who come to faith, then that can easily be misconstrued that, well, then God just declares well, everybody. Yeah, then I don't need Jesus. Yeah, then faith doesn't matter, right? It's kind of contradictory if you see it in that way. But if you understand a declaration to be like a king's decree that goes out into all the land that says, um, you know, you don't have to pay any more taxes and that every all the prisoners are set free, everybody's pardoned, Oh, and the king will come and see you at some point in time in the future. And you can go, and, and if you're hearing the king's decree, this is how Luther put it at least, if you hear the king's decree, you know it's from the king because the messenger has the banners, he has the seal, he has all these things that say, I'm from the king, I'm telling you the truth, this is what the king said. And they can see those things and say, oh, then it must be true, and they can rejoice and receive the benefits of that declaration, or they can reject it and say, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't buy it. I'm still going to pay my taxes. Uh, you know, I'm still going to say that so-and-so should be in jail or whatever. Um, and, and I don't expect the king, king to come to my tiny town or whatever. And, but then the thing is, is that when the king visited, visits and sees your unfaithfulness, uh, you'll be punished accordingly, right? So do you see what I mean by that? That when we think of declaration, we can easily think that people are declared righteous. And when he says, not only those who come to faith, uh, it's problematic. It's kind of, it's not as precise as I'd like, like it to be. Do you, see, do you see my problem with this right now? I do. Okay. But I'm having another thought. Is yeah. He, is he, but is he trying to just make the point like, God did that for everybody, regardless of whether they um, come to faith or not. Yeah. I would put it this way. Um, I, I don't necessarily, I think use, using declaration is too confusing. It'd be easier to say Christ died for all people. Christ died for all people. Now, the benefits of his death are not received apart from faith. That's saying exactly what the Bible says. I think he's trying to drive the point too far, though. What do y'all think? What I do y'all think? You're think? Right. Well, thank you. That's probably just because I'm the pastor, right? <laughs> no, but do you disagree? I mean, do you think I'm going too far? Does anybody think I'm going too far with this? I just, I just, I just want. Is he, is he summing up Romans 4 or 5 there? Yeah, so let's take a look at Romans works. 4 or 5 real quick. So Romans 4 or 5, I mean, my, my, my new King James says, uh, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I mean, that, that's obviously right because it's Holy Scripture. But, I mean, that makes more sense. 
But he's saying God declares righteous the ungodly, not only those who come to faith. Um, it, it's a little, it's a little too loose for me. Um, I think he, I, I just don't really see where he's going with that because if you look at what he references in he chapter five, take that the wrong way very easily. Very easily. Um, clarity is paramount in theology, and when he said, when 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 he sees, for instance, chapter five, verse seven through eight. That says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he says that this states that according to our powerless time, while we were still sinners, Christ died on behalf of the ungodly. But that's muddying the waters a little bit, because dying, dying on behalf of the ungodly is not necessarily the same thing, or people can misconstrue that, it's not the same thing as being declared righteous necessarily. Right? You see what I'm getting at? Picking up what I'm putting down? All right. So, that's my quibble, and he kind of reinforces this later on, so we'll get there. And we'll just kind of push through this, all right? So in Romans 5, he says, in Romans 5, Paul again trumpets forth universal justification. Romans 5.10 speaks of this same reality with the language of reconciliation. For if while we were enemies, we were, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, universal, right? How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? That's individual, right? Notice the same idea in 2 Corinthians 5.19-20. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them, universal, we beseech you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God in individual sense. Uh, read five. Read Romans five fifteen and eighteen through nineteen, uh, which say five fifteen and eighteen through nineteen. Uh, but the free gift is not like the offense, and you might have a different translation, of course. For for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And in verses 18 through 19, Therefore, as through one man's trespass, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So how do these verses also show the pattern of universal and individual justification? Would y'all put for that? Adam won to all, Jesus won to all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Individual, universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else have something like that? That's kind of what I put. I was like, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. I was like, by one individual sin, by Adam's, all were dead in sin. And then it works the other way around through Christ's life and his individual sacrifice and everything. Everybody. Everybody, yeah. Everybody is... uh, and, And this is where we have to be careful. Like, everybody is... We should declare righteous the righteousness of God to everybody because it is for them. Yes. The, 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 the gift is for everyone. Christ died for all people. 
not just some or the few or the elect or whatever. Um, he died for all people so that all people would be saved. Uh, but by faith or unbelief, you either receive or you, you either you either receive the benefits of that declaration or you receive the condemnation for un, for unbelief, right? So Christ died for all men, and this truth of salvation is as this truth of salvation is proclaimed, then we believe on an individual level, right? Um, anybody else have anything for that? No. All right, so some interpreters dismiss universal justification as legal fiction, stating that such a declaration is not real if it is not received by faith. It is, however, real and present in Jesus Christ. Jesus took on the sin of all humanity in his flesh. God poured out upon Christ at the cross his wrath against every sin and sinner, and on the basis of Christ's perfect life, atoning sacrifice, and victorious resurrection, God looks at every sinner in Christ and declares everyone righteous. I'll, I'll, let me just finish through this and I'll get to, again, the issue with this. This objective declaration of the world's righteous status before God is present in the flesh and blood Jesus. The benefits of this universal declaration are totally and fully appropriated by you and others when the Holy Spirit creates faith in Christ through the gospel, either through baptism or, or the spoken word. Um, and we, it's funny. So I said that I still don't like the, the language of declaration apart from faith. Um, universal justification can exist apart from faith, just as God does, right? God is real, whether you believe in him or not. Uh, but it doesn't do you any, it would mean like, it doesn't do, do you any good not to believe in him, right? But he's still there, just like universal justification is. Uh, I think Dr. Gieschen goes too far in his argument by claiming all the world has been declared righteous as opposed to all the world has been presented righteousness freely for Christ's sake, yet the benefits are not received apart from faith. And then we had some folks this morning say they didn't even like what he said in the last sentence because the language of appropriation may also bring into something about how we can do something, Right. Uh, I, I'd rather say that the benefits of this universal declaration are totally and fully granted or gifted, right, um, to you and to others. To you, not by you. Yeah, to you, not by you, uh, and to others when the Holy Spirit creates faith in Christ through the gospel, not either, but through baptism and the spoken word, not or the spoken word. I mean... Let's just say and. Let's let's be inclusive here. Let's bring it all together, right? Because it, in baptism, it, it's the water and the word. Yeah, yeah. I, it's all I'm trying to do here is say that uh, he's. It's just not. I just don't like the way that it's written. <laughs> it's not as clear as it could be, and that's unfortunate. He's not a heretic for anything that he's said necessarily. It's just because you can put a good spin on it for what he means by declaration, I just think that it could be explained a little bit better. So, Dr. Gieschen, if you're listening, uh, I'm sorry. But this was... Rewrite your Bible. This was written... Yeah, yeah. This was written, what, back in 2002? So, I mean... Or even... Before, yeah, yeah, it was written back in 2002. So, he might have 
clarified things since then. Yeah, I could have a toll chain to heart by now. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, well, especially because one of our professors at the seminary would have never let him hear, hear the end of it if he ever got wind of this. So, uh, yeah, anyways. No, I, I love Dr. Gieschen. He's a good man. Uh, but I, I wish that he would be more uh, clear in this. And uh, hopefully you see why, right? you have any questions about this? Anything? No? Okay. Well, with that... Uh, words to remember, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. Okay? Um, for next time, we will prepare for the righteous Abra- for righteous Abraham by reading Romans 4, verses 1 through 25. And then just keep doing what you're doing. Fill out the questions um, with your answers. And, uh, yeah. Any last thoughts, questions, comments? They've moved into the book of Romans in my KFUO radio. Oh, yeah? Podcast. Oh, yeah? So, so getting like a dose of it, like, dose. yeah, a double dose of it, like, every day. Nice. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, nice. Good. Yeah, Any anytime you can spend more time in the Word is a good time. So, uh, yeah. All right, well. I've uh, got so much time left. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious how, you know, some people dismiss universal justification. Mm-hmm. How, what does, what is the difference in evangelism between the, like us who accept universal justification and those who, who reject it? Is, is there any discernible difference? Yeah. Um, yeah, guilt. I'd say, I'd say guilt is the biggest distinction there. Uh, and what I mean by guilt is that if you, uh, depends on what you're talking about. If you're saying that universal justification is not a thing because it's only about individual faith that matters. Like you have to make the decision yeah. to come to Christ. Right. Then it's guilt on the people who spread the gospel because it's up to you as to whether or not somebody makes a decision. Uh, oh, that's an implication. Uh-huh. And there's also the implication that uh, once you have made that decision, uh, people have and do uh, second guess that decision. Did I do it the right way? Right? Did I did I say the right things? Did I make the right move with this, that, or the other? If it's all about what I have to choose and do and say and whatever. So there's that side of it. There's there's that side of guilt. Then there's the other side of the guilt with the Calvinists who will harp on universal justification not being a thing because they believe in what we would call double predestination. You know about, you know mm-hmm. what I mean by that? No. In which case there's no evangelism at all. Yeah, what's the point? So double predestination that we would say is double predestination is, um, well, the Calvinists have this acronym TULIP. Mm-hmm. Each letter means something. Um, and um, what is it? Total depravity, unconditional election. So yeah, um, uh, limited atonement is what they would harp on. They believe that Jesus Christ did not die for all people, but for the elect. Oh, oh okay. And so what they would say is that well, if God has, and, and they use Romans to justify themselves wrongly by saying when Paul gets into the um, the distinction between the vessels that are made for 
good things as opposed to bad, right? Um, they say they use that along with other things to say that not only does God elect those to be saved, but He elects those to be damned as well. And we totally disagree with that because it goes directly against the desire of God that is found in Scripture that says that He desires for all men to be saved. Yeah. So if He desires all men to be saved, but He doesn't save them, that's a problem, right? It's a big, big problem. It's a big contradiction. But that's because they're that's because they're letting their reason drive their understanding as opposed to their faith. Uh, they're not letting God's word just speak for itself and let a paradox be a paradox. So, and that's guilt too in evangelism. Um, well, maybe not so much in evangelism, but it's, it's guilt because they'll always be asking themselves, am I really one of the elect? Am I really one of the ones that Jesus died for? And they'll ask the question, it's like, how can I know? And they'll talk about, well, you'll know them by their fruits. So do you have good fruit? And so then it's, then it's uh, self-justification. Yeah. yeah. So then it just turns into more guilt. So that's why I said guilt uh, is a primary distinctive. For us, we would say, you know what? It's, it, we should feel some guilt, rightfully, for not talking about God's word and talking about Christ. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But we should not feel so much guilt that we should say, well, this entire, you know, that all is lost because I didn't do my part. Then we're focusing on our fallen shortcomings as opposed to focusing on Christ, who did die for all, and who may be able to send somebody because we failed. Not that we should rest on that, but use that as encouragement to repent. Right. I had another thought on your. Uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's do it. I'm closing my binder, but you can go ahead and say something. Yeah. You said earlier the only free will you have is to resist. Yeah, to reject. Yeah, yeah. And I think back to, to creation. Adam and Eve didn't choose to. Yeah. Be perfect and accept and yeah. accept God in that they only chose to re- to not listen. Right. I just wanted to. Yeah, that's that's that. that's that's a good parallel. Um, yeah, yeah, and we didn't choose to be born, right? We didn't, you know. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Oh, I didn't ask to be born. What's that? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Not personally. No, not personally. I mean. Yeah. Where they got a problem. Like, I didn't ask for this life, blah, 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 blah. Like if, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have yet to experience that. Um, I've, I, I, I experience it indirectly on some level with uh, my extended family on my wife's side. So that she has a lot of family members who really struggle. I mean, they don't, let's just say this, they don't struggle with their unbelief. Um, and some of them see... Some of them see God as just um, some nice being that sometimes gives you good things. Sometimes he throws you a bone. Sometimes he throws you a little crumb here and there. Uh, But that's no reason for them to believe in him or anything like that. It's just just like, yeah, you got it all backwards. It's all backwards. It's a shame. uh, The depths of people's um, well, depravity and unbelief Jeremiah, or the Lord says through Jeremiah, the heart is desperately sick and evil. Who can discern it? You know, 
wicked. Desperately wicked, that's right. So we pray for those folks, and, and hopefully we should pray that we could be some pe- somebody to talk to them about Christ, right? We are his, his hands and his feet in that sense. All right, any more questions? I'm going to have to turn this into a two-part thing on the audio. Uh, <laughs> it's a long listen for folks. Um, that would be the first two-parter. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Well, it'll just be like in two parts. They can just listen to one and then just go on to the next one. Is that going to go that long? Oh, man, it's been going for a while. So with that, how about let's close with the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.